testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word, for this gospel, for the word made flesh. As we consider your word, we ask you to lay it upon our hearts by your Spirit. Refresh and revive us. Make us true followers of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Who catches your ear? Who do you listen to? Uh, I might be thinking of favorite podcasts these days, right? Who do you like to listen to? Who catches your ear? What is the voice that leads you? takes you places, answers the questions that you want, most want answers to? Whose voice catches your ear and whose voice catches your soul most deeply? Are you listening for voices and how do you evaluate which voices to listen to? Are you listening to voices that just will affirm you and coddle you and validate you and your own feelings? Or are you listening for voices that open your eyes and show you a way you never saw because you never knew where you really were and where you really needed to go? That's what's going on when John is witnessing, and especially as he's witnessing to those who want to hear a voice, these Jews, these Pharisees, these Sadducees that come, the priests and Levites, they come, they want to hear a voice, they want to know who this is, but they don't want to know who this is. They don't really want to find out that they're lost in the wilderness. And that's for us, I think, a lot of times, too. We oftentimes are listening, first of all, to the voices that, um, as, as Timothy says, or as Paul says to Timothy, tickle our itching ears. Oh, that feels very nice. Let me listen to that again. Let me follow in that direction. Maybe more importantly is this. What, what happens when you hear this declaration? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Charles Haddon Spurgeon great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, was to preach at the Crystal Palace, his church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which I understand, I understand sat over 5,000, um, was not available. It was under some construction or additional repairs. 
And so he had set up to, to meet in the Crystal Palace, and he went beforehand to test the acoustics out. He was to stand in that great pulpit, and his friend was to stand at various places and listen. This was the 19th century, and of course, there were no loudspeakers. And this palace was to hold over 20,000 people. I can't imagine. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon mounted the pulpit and cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He had a much nicer voice, good, strong English accent. I'm sure it made all the difference in the world. But that's what he said. And that's all that he said. This was repeated several times so that his voice could be tested in various parts of the building. And then they left, realizing that Spurgeon's voice could be heard all over the palace. But what they had not noticed was that while Spurgeon was quoting that verse, a workman was putting some finishing touches to a roof on that building. And while the man was working, he heard Spurgeon's voice quoting over and over and over again that one verse, and he fell under conviction of sin. He came under the working of God's Holy Spirit, and later that night, he came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Later, on his deathbed, that man would retell that story, and it would be passed on to Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a voice. He was a channel through which God's word could go forth. John the Baptist did just the same thing. John pointed men to Christ. John was a voice to those who knew that they were in the wilderness. And John was a voice to proclaim to people they were lost in a wilderness. That's what this passage is about. The evangelist, John the evangelist, and we call him John the evangelist to help distinguish him from John the Baptist in, in this gospel. John the, the evangelist takes us to the ministry of John the Baptist in a town east of the Jordan River. In verse 28, we're told it's Bethabara. Some translations say it's Bethany. It's not the Bethany right near Jerusalem. It is, uh, there was a Bethany, and then there may have been also another city, Bethabara. We find that in Judges. There's a whole bunch of um, discussion about where it was. But these cities were both beyond the Jordan. They were east of the Jordan. They were outside of the, the kind of the established land of Israel. That this would have been the wilderness of Judea, east of the Jordan River. From the other Gospels, we, we, if, we, if we put together the story of John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus, then from the other Gospels, we can conclude that this envoy of priests and Levites would have come to see Jesus some six weeks after Jesus has already been baptized and went off into the wilderness to experience 40 days of fasting and temptations from the devil. So where John is picking, us, picking up right now, you'll notice John doesn't record the baptism of Jesus, he, uh, John the evangelist. He records John the Baptist referring back to that baptism when he declares, um, that here, here's the lamb, behold the Lamb of God at this time. So um, most likely what has happened is six weeks prior or a little more, John had already baptized Jesus in the wilderness. And then Jesus, we we're told in the other gospels, Jesus immediately goes off into the wilderness where he experiences the temptation, um, uh, where he fasts and then experiences the temptation of the devil. Matthew tells us that Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, went out to, J to John the Baptist. And apparently then this has gone on for some time. So, so I, want you, I want you to put this in, in a little bit more perspective than maybe you think about it. John has been preaching um, just at this town or around this town or outside of this town. It's not like, it's not like it was just kind of uh, one big uh, campground that they were meeting in. But coming in and out of this town, there would have been those for weeks who were coming and hearing John the Baptist preaching. So much so that now a period of time has come and the, the Jewish leaders in, in Jerusalem are concerned 
enough to send an envoy of officials to go and ask specific questions of John the Baptist. Something's going on, and they're not necessarily happy about it. So the priests and Levites from Jerusalem, they come to question John, having been sent by the Jews. It says uh, in, um, right here in, uh, in verse 19. When John uses the term the Jews, uh, you have to look at the context. Uh, sometimes he means um, the, Jewish race, the Jewish race in general. And sometimes he means he's speaking of the particular Jewish leaders and the leadership. So since it's Levites and priests that are sent, it's not like a, there was a vote taken and the democracy of the Jews sent out these people to go ask questions. It's probably the Sanhedrin, those who have um, civil authority over the temple and the temple policy. They're, they're actually known as the temple police of sorts. They were overseeing the civic responsibilities of the nation, and they are wondering what has authorized John to do this because they were, they were the ones to, uh, that were authorized to cleanse Israel. And so John was on their turf. John was doing things that they thought they would, should be the ones doing this. Now, historians say that the first century Jerusalem was rife with false messiahs. You might remember that Jesus warns in Matthew 24 that there will be many who will come calling themselves Christ, the Christ. And this has gone on throughout this first, throughout this first century. There's, there's reasons about that. Really, it goes back to the book of Daniel and the dating of when a Messiah would come. And so there was great expectation that a Messiah was going to come that was going to deliver, deliver Israel from the Roman rule and from the corruption even within um, and so this may be why John begins by emphatically denying that he is the Christ in verse 20. In verse 20, it looks funny in our English. In the Greek, the, the point is this, there's great emphasis being made. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Um, we might say, he really, really, really meant it when he said, I'm not the Christ. That's what he's making clear. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not like all those other false, false ones who are making this claim. Well, there are also expectations that Elijah would return as a forerunner to the Messiah. Remember, Elijah, um, we don't see Elijah die. We see him caught up into the heavens. Elisha does. He sees him caught up into the heavens. Um, and, and so there was an expectation that Elijah would come one day. And in fact, the final, um, the final prophet of, of the Old Testament, Malachi, says that, that um, uh, beho he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming and the great and dreadful day of the Lord. There was some expectation that possibly even a reincarnation of Elijah was going to take place. And, and while we see in other gospels that Jesus says that, um, that, that John the Baptist did come in the spirit of Elijah, he's not the reincarnated Elijah. And so he says, no, I'm not Elijah. Uh, John the Baptist says, no, I'm not Elijah. Nor was he the prophet that Moses had promised. Not, not just a prophet, but Moses promised there would be another prophet like me who had, been, who had been before the face of God, who would come and bring forth the law again. And, and, and so it's not just a prophet. Elijah's, or John the Baptist is not denying that he's a prophet. He's denying that he's the prophet that Moses had, had promised would come. Someone else is that, that prophet. This person, um, this person, this forerunner to the Messiah, would come with a renewal cleansing, and, and, so would, um, and, and so would this Messiah. And so Isaiah 52 says um, in, in the promise of this Messiah who would come, so he shall sprinkle many nations. Ezekiel 36, listen to this. For I will take, take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh." 
And then Zechariah 13.1, in that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Why? For sin and for uncleanness. The Jews understood that there was a ritual ceremony, that there was a sprinkling that was going to take place, that there was going to be a washing that took place, and this washing was going to be something far more than just ceremonial. It was going to give them new hearts. It was going to take care of sin um, in a way that hadn't hadn't experienced. In fact, Ezekiel goes on in that passage and talks about this gift of the Spirit that is going to fall upon them. So they're anticipating this. And, and here we have John the Baptist, and he's baptizing people. And so they ask him, are you the prophet? Are you the Elijah? Are you the Christ? And he says, no, I'm not any of those. Well, and so the delegation then says to him, well, then we have to go back and give account for who you are. Who are you then? What are we supposed to say? What answer should we give? And John's answer is a quote, a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. John says, I am the voice of one, cry, of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. There would be a voice, the voice that would come, that would come as a forerunner to the Messiah, and that one would come and declare um, that, that a way needed to be made straight um, before the Lord, before the Lord's coming. This is a passage where Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, is calling for a way to be cleared through the desert wilderness for the return of the covenant people from exile. You might recall Isaiah is, is preaching during the time that Assyria, is, or that Assyria comes and takes the northern kingdom off into exile, and then before, but the prophecies of a great exile that is going to take place um, when, when that takes place um, from, um, from Nebuchadnezzar and, uh, and Babylon. And when he's giving that prophecy, he also prophesies of a return that is going to take place out of exile that they would be coming back into the land. They would be coming back from the wilderness and the desert. And, that, that, and there's this declaration to make the way straight for the exiles to be able to come easily, easily back into the land. That's the immediate picture that that prophecy was about. But of course, it pointed to something far greater than that. And here is all of Judea and all of Jerusalem, as words that um, words that John would use, words that Matthew and Mark also use, all of Judea, all of Jerusalem, they're outside of, of the promised land, on the other side of the Jordan, and they're in the wilderness. They're in the desert. And by the way, again, wilderness, um, the, the Greek word can be translated either wilderness or desert. You shouldn't think of like the Olympic National Forests and rangers going around and everything's really fun and pristine and nice. What you should be thinking about is a place where you would be afraid to spend the night um, there, there were wild animals. There were um, wild people. There, there were. Th- this was not necessarily a safe place. It was a place of desolation. It was a place uh, meaning that you were outside of safety. You were outside of protection. You were outside of provision. The wilderness, the desert, was not a safe place to be. And so the the hope was that the that people would be brought out of that. Um, wilderness and desert and then into the land. Well, John's doing this. He's reenacting or he's prefiguring something else. And this is all in the minds of the people. And, and I'm sure he, he, the only thing he didn't say for six weeks was, was just simple one-liners. He, he's got to be explaining what is going on and calling people to repentance for sin and that a Messiah is coming. So think about this. Here was John in the very place, in the, in the same geographic location where Moses had ended his career 
and turned it over to Joshua, who then brought the people into the promised land. This is the same place where Elijah takes Elisha with him, crossing the Jordan, and then goes up into the heavens. The spirit is poured out upon Elisha, and then Elisha returns. It's the same place. It's just beyond the Jordan. And then here is John, at the, right at the same place where the Jordan River was parted twice. Those two times. Once for the successor to Moses, and once for the successor to Elijah. Who would be the successor for John? But John was neither of those. He was not Elijah. He was not the prophet. He was not the Messiah. And so this delegation asked him, who in the world are you? And John says, uh, John had brought this ministry out into the wilderness beyond the Jordan because Jerusalem was spiritually in the wilderness. Because the people of Israel were lost in the wilderness. He brought them out there to show them, this is who you really are. This is where you really are. This is spiritually where you are. You're lost in spiritual exile. Remember in, uh, in verse 7, this man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. They were in darkness and he came to give wit bear witness to the light. John speaks obliquely to these Jewish leaders knowing that they weren't searching for the truth. He will do this and so will Jesus often, not giving straight answers, but oftentimes obliquely giving answers, giving parables Jesus would do many times. They who knew the scriptures were not listening to the voice of the scriptures. They weren't listening. Those, those who had studied the scriptures the most were not listening to the voice of the scriptures. They wanted to hear another voice. They wanted to twist the teachings to, to cover and protect their own ways, their own control that they had over the people, over the temple, over the riches of the temple, over the, over the government of the people. They wanted to keep control and they were concerned about what, who John was or who John might be pointing to that was coming. So, who are you, John? I'm the voice. I'm the voice crying in your wilderness. I'm, I'm the voice crying in the wilderness that you are in. The wilderness that you are in and you don't even know you are in. I am that voice pointing you. And so he goes, goes on in verses 24 and says, now um, those who were sent were from the Pharisees. So there's, there's, there's probably the way to best understand this is another group also from the Pharisees and they jump in because of his answers. Well, if you're not, wait a second. If you're not the, the prophet, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the Messiah, the anointed one, then who gives you, where'd you get this right to go around baptizing people? Where'd you get that from? Where is this authorization? These were the group, the Pharisees, who zealously oversaw and grew the traditions of outward observance. They, they, had, created, they had created baptisms for everybody everywhere. You had, you, had to, you had to go through baptisms before you could eat dinner now. You had, to, you had to do this performance of this ceremonial baptism of your hands to make sure you were ceremonially now clean just before you eat. That's not in the scriptures. They're adding it. They're, they're, like, if, they're like supersizing the deals, the, the meal deals all the time. The, the, if, if one is good, three is better. That's what the Pharisees were about. Outward, ex, outward expressions of, of holiness but of course, as John or as Jesus would record, they were hypocrites in their hearts. So they, they were people who didn't believe in, their, in any need to, rep, to repent. The Pharisees believed they were going through meticulously keeping all of God's law. They didn't need to repent. And here's this prophet out in the wilderness calling all of Israel to repent and be baptized. And they're saying, we're the guys who baptize and we're not ones who need to repent. And so they, they ask him, who... who who do you think you are and what gave you the authorization to baptize? 
Jesus' um, baptisms, and I just want to make sure you understand this, baptisms were not new to, to the people of God. Gentiles were being, conver- when they were converted to, um, to, to, to become proselytes in the Jewish traditions and religions, they would be baptized. Now, actually, they would go through a self-baptism ceremony, but they would be baptized. So, um, but the question, why would John be baptizing Jews? If the Gentiles are baptized in order to be proselytes, that would be a ceremonial cleansing to declare them to be no longer part of the Gentile nation, but to be a part of God's covenant people. But you're baptizing Jews. You, you, you see the confusion. You see the confusion they would have. John answers in such a way as to say, well, if you really want to know, the voice the whole world will soon hear is just around the corner. Look with me, verse 25 and following again. Verse 26, John answered them and said, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who is coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal straps I am not worthy to loose. He's, he is coming after me, he makes the point, because even though he's really before me, this is another one of those uh, points that, of Jesus' preeminence over John. That theme, we already saw that theme back in verse 15, and you're going to see that theme. John's going to have to say this several times. Again, it seems to be an indication that, um, okay, fast forward 30 years after Jesus has now ascended into heaven. That's when John's writing this gospel from Ephesus. And it's very likely he's still dealing with those who are following John the Baptist's teachings. He, John the Baptist was a, was a great preacher, was, had many, many followers. And, and, and they spread and went out. And we know in the book of Acts, we find some in Ephesus who've only been baptized in the baptism of John. So I, I believe that you see hints of this throughout the gospel of John, that John is not just speaking to all people at all times, but also particularly to, in his generation to his people in Ephesus. John is not the Messiah. He's not the Christ. He's not even the Elijah. He's not even the prophet. He's a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And he was pointing to one who would come after him but actually that one was preeminent of him. That one was the true Messiah. That one was Jesus. I think that's what's going on here as, as, as we continue to see this in the Gospel of John. John goes on to describe how much greater Jesus is than himself. John baptizes with water, he says, but the one who stands among you, did you notice that? The one who stands among you in verse 26. But there stands one among you. Could Jesus have been right there? Because it's the very next day in verse 29. As John, is, as John is saying these words, could Jesus have been right there? We don't know. Jesus will later tell these teachers of the scripture that though they search the scrolls, they refuse to see that they speak of him. John 5, 39. These things should all be coming together for them, but such are the ways of the prophets and those who refuse to listen to the prophets. Here they are concerned with John, but there is one coming whose sandal strap he was not even worthy to untie, he says. Now, he doesn't, uh, John doesn't just come up with that idea in his own mind. There were actually rabbinical teachings to curb the worship of rabbis. Rabbis could have their students serve them with many menial tasks, but never so slavish as to remove their sandals. That was a teaching out of the Talmud. John states that not only was it not beneath him to do so to Jesus... But notice, it was far above him. He wasn't worthy even to be lifted up to the point of being able to untie the sandals of his master. So great is the glory of Christ. Can I pause there for just a moment? What does that mean? 
That means that any menial task you do, any menial task that you do in obedience to the Lord elevates your status as a servant of the Lord of glory, something none of us are ever even worthy to be. The most menial task that you do in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ lifts you to a status of glory you do not deserve to be in. And he graciously brings you up into that status to serve him as his sons and daughters, as his co-reigners with him. John understood this. Oh, that we would grasp the glory of Jesus, the glory of Jesus so greatly that when we see then that he calls us, summons you to himself, you're amazed at being lifted up by him. Anytime you have come to Jesus, anytime you serve Jesus, you are being lifted up into glory with him. You're sharing the glory of glories. You're sharing the, 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 the most glorious, the most majestic position that exists in all of creation and beyond. This is what's going on. But we have no record that any of these leaders hung around to see what happens the very next day. There's no response from them at all. But in verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, only John's gospel records these words of the Baptist. Remember, I've told you that there are many, many passages in, in the Gospel of John that are only in the Gospel of John, far more than the differences we might see between the synoptics, the other three Gospels. And so we should watch carefully what's going on. Why is John bringing these things out? What's his particular message in his Gospel? Jesus, having been baptized and sent into the wilderness, returns to John. John, having continued to bear witness of Jesus, now at last and sees him and proclaims him to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, then, is the substitutionary lamb that Abraham told his son God would provide. There, Abraham has been told to take his son up a hill to sacrifice him. He doesn't tell Isaac that. As he's taking Isaac up, Isaac asks him, Father, who's going to provide the sin for the burnt offering? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide the lamb. This is the lamb that is being provided. He is, Jesus is the Passover lamb whose bones were not broken and whose blood was, was put over our doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over. Every year, the celebration of faithful Jews was to celebrate the Passover, was to see the blood of the lamb placed on the doorposts so that the angel of death would, would pass over them, to remember what had happened in their exodus out of Egypt. Remember, none of the other Gospels re refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God. But John wants all of, all of us pointing. The first title that is being given to this one is this is the Lamb of God. He is, he's the Lamb of God. He's saying this when they're in the wilderness, like, like the people in the, during the time of the Exodus that are be, have been brought out of Egypt because of the Passover Lamb and are now going to be able to go in and take the land. They're going to be able to go through another baptism as they cross the Jordan and go in and take the land. Not only that, he's the true lamb represented by every morning and evening sacrifice. If there were still the Sanhedrin around, if there still were the Levites and priests, they knew that every morning and every evening, according to Exodus, 20, uh, Exodus 28, there was a lamb that was offered up for the people before God. And he's the lamb that satisfies the full and holy wrath of God for the whole world. That's what's going on. That's what he's being declared. He's, he's the... He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Something, something that even that, that idea, the phrase takes away, 
is, is referring to the, the scapegoat that w- would be, uh, your sin would be laid on the scapegoat. One goat would be set aside to be offered as a sin offering. The other one would, would be, um, you're, you'd lay your hands on it and send it out where? Into the wilderness. Where your sin was taken out into the wilderness. And then when your sin was taken out into the wilderness, you now came out of the wilderness, out of the wilderness of that sin, and you were declared to be clean and able to go and worship God. How could the Levites, how could the scribes not see this? This is what John is pointing out. John, who himself is of the, of the tribe of Levi, is saying, don't, don't you see all of these things? Don't you see how, what, what I'm doing? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He was and is then Jesus, everything they and you are looking for. John baptized with water, but when he baptized Jesus, the Spirit descended, he tells us. So again, he's not, this is not an account of the baptism of Jesus. It's, G, it's John the Baptist recounting the baptism. He, he goes on to explain, I didn't know him, verse 31, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Me, meaning, it's not that he never knew Jesus. They were relatives, probably cousins, and it's very likely that they would have seen one another, at least as they gathered for feasts, annual feasts. John would have grown up in southern uh, Judea, most likely, and and, um, Jesus, of course, grew up in Nazareth up in the north. So they weren't like next door neighbors or anything, but they would have, they most likely had seen one another. But John doesn't know that Jesus is the Messiah. Until, as a prophet, he's told by God, I will show you, this is he of whom I said, um, in, uh, John bore witness that uh, in verse 33, God said to him, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so John, God told John that this would happen. The baptism of the Spirit leads you out of the wilderness, exile, life without God, through the waters of baptism and identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and into the new life, the new heart, the spiritual communion with the Father. When, when Israel is exiled and then brought back, Israel is being, is, is, being, um, is being disciplined for their sin, and then when their sin is dealt with, they're brought back, and they're brought back through waters of baptism, and they're brought back into the, into the covenant land. It was all a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. When, 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 when Israel is brought out of Exodus, it's the same thing. You're brought out of, uh, out of your bondage, and you're brought out into freedom. The, the same, what, what, what John is doing is he's giving the same picture and then declaring with the with this baptism of Jesus that I baptized him with water, but did you see? I saw the Spirit descend upon him. Because it's not going to just be a ceremonial baptism only. There is going to be a complete change of life within the hearts of those who believe on the Lamb of God, who turn to the Lamb of God. It's no longer just a ceremonial sacrifice. It's no more an animal sacrifice. It's the blood of a man who is God, who is offering up the sin that would be able to take care of God's anger of God's righteous and holy anger against you and all of mankind. John would say in his epistle, he himself, Jesus, is the propitiation, the turning away of God's wrath for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. That's how we get communion with God the Father. 
It's only by going through. It's only by, by knowing that you're in the wilderness. It's only by knowing your sin and your helplessness and your bondage to it. And it's only then by looking to the Lamb of God who God provides. You can't provide, but God provides, just as Abraham said. It's the Lamb of God whose blood covers over your household, over your person, over your life. And his blood is put up there so that God sees it's been taken care of. Your sin is covered. It's paid for, fully paid for. It's the Lamb of God who, offer, who, who is offered up constantly, not in sacrifice, but through his intercession on our behalf, stands before the Father and prays for us. Just as the morning and evening sacrifices were offered up in prayers. This is the one. He's fulfilling it all. Jesus is everything you need to be right with God the Father and to remain right with God the Father. Twice he will say, the Spirit descended and remained on Jesus. And if you're in Jesus, the Spirit is in you, on you, and remains with you. The Spirit is there. And so, I'm going to be pointing to this Probably so many times you'll get sick of it after a while. As we go through the Gospel of John, I want you to see the confidence of, the, of John the Evangelist in his proclamation of this Gospel. This Gospel that is going to take care of the whole world. This Gospel that objectively has taken care of the whole world. Because the Lamb of God has done His work. And what we are seeing is the outworking of that one-time sacrifice that has taken place as he now remains at his father's right hand. Hear the words, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not an offer as much as a declaration of what Jesus would do. In fact, what he is doing, what he is doing. Of all the reasons that Jesus came into the world, of all the reasons, he be, to, to all the reasons that he became a man, he did so to suffer and die. The first reason the evangelist wants you to see and hear is that he came to take care of your sin, of your sin. God the Father had John, in the, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, write this book so that you would hear the voice, so that you would hear the voice say, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, your sin. That's the first reason that Jesus has come. To take away the sin of the world. He received the baptism of repentance. When he receives the baptism of repentance from John, he is identifying with your repentance. And by the way, your imperfect repentance. Aren't you glad that, doesn't, that God doesn't, merit, uh, doesn't, doesn't measure how sincere your repentance is? Come on, be honest. Aren't you glad God doesn't measure how perfect your repentance is because you know how imperfect your repentance is you know you say the words you know you confess the sin and you know that there's still that struggle in your flesh with yeah but it wouldn't have happened if or I'm sure that God doesn't really think it's all that bad I need to turn completely around or whatever it is that goes through your mind and heart you know your repentance isn't perfect, but you're in Jesus Christ. His baptism of repentance was perfect. You come to him in that perfect repentance. You come to God the Father through the perfect repentance of Jesus. Then he goes off into the wilderness to experience temptation and exile. 
that he might be the perfect mediator and intercessor for you. That he would experience what it was to be tempted even, at, even before the very person of Satan himself and to stand against it so that he could intercede on your behalf with regard to all and any temptation that you face. And then he returned to be the sacrificial and substitutionary lamb to take away all of your sin, but also for the whole world. It's one other passage that refers to the Lamb of God, speaking of Jesus. There's only one other passage. There's, there's these points here in, in the Gospel of John and then in Revelation chapter 5. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you, Lamb, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God and by your blood, listen, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaims. How far does he remove your sin? He removes your sins so far that you are, you are declared so clean that you can sit in the heavenlies with Jesus reigning over with him over heaven and earth. What about my dead, impenitent heart? Well, he takes that heart and he kills it. He kills a dead heart. <laughs> he takes that dead heart. He takes it upon himself. He takes you upon himself. And in his death, burial and resurrection, he gives you a new heart. The Spirit of God grants this new heart of faith. And you have a completely different orientation now with regard to life, with regard to the glory of God and the things of the earth. You're in the new Adam and a part of, of, of the people who are taking dominion in the name of Jesus over the land. Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. How simple can a witness be, or at least begin to be? Charles Spurgeon can just say this, this line over and over again, and God uses it. What are you to learn from this? Sin-drenched people need to hear simple words. They need to simple, simple words. Your sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ. How does that all work? Your sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ. How, how do you know? Your sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ. Yeah, we can go and study it. We can, we can go and study it. We, we can go and study. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Yeah, yeah but how do you know? It's just, you, just, you just call upon? You just, that's all you do? Yeah, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Yeah, yeah but what about whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved? Yes, there is a good place for us to study apologetics, to be able to give a defense for the faith, to answer the questions. But sometimes there is just a place for a simple gospel truth. God uses this. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Come. Come now. We'll figure it out, but come now. And I'm saying this to a bunch of Christians who have come to the Lord Jesus Christ, who have, who have called upon the Lamb of God, who have experienced a, a conversion. What am I doing? What am I doing? What would God have you do with this proclamation again? 
Well, many times we get lost in our own wilderness, don't we? Our own wilderness of sin, of darkness, doubt, fear, worry and anxiety. Our own darkness of suffering that turns us away from following after the Lamb. All of us find ourselves in in a wilderness. And all of us, at times, need to hear the simple message again. Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin. Your sin. Yeah, your sin, Christian. (laughs) You did it once for all on the cross. And if you confess your sins, he will again cleanse you and bring you into full fellowship with him. Again? He'll do it again? Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. There's, there's no, like, there's not a footnote after that. There's not exception clauses. Well, except for these sins, or except for this many times. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's not that you need to be saved, but it is that you need to be saved again in a certain way. Jesus is that way. Jesus is that Lamb. Turn to Him. Turn to Him. That's repentance. Repentance isn't just a one-time act. Repentance is an ongoing work of our sanctification. Luther said that our life is a life full of repentance, ongoing repentance. Turn to him. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He will take away your sin. And only he can. Only he can. And here he is. Here he is. A voice has proclaimed him to you. Now, here, take him. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray for all here to know your Son as the Lamb of God. To not miss, to not miss Him. Come to take away their sin. I pray you, Father, would open eyes to the wilderness that we are in, lost in our sins. We are, this nation is certainly. Lead us to the Lamb of God once again. We need our sins taken care of. They are a heavy burden. May we all experience the glory of seeing Jesus and having that burden lifted off of us and off of us again because we've heard the voice of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing from that passage in Revelation, page 296. Behold the glories of the Lamb.